So um, here we are in Matthew 16, and we spoke last Sunday, we studied together this question that Jesus posed to his disciples. And it, of course, it's a two-part question. It begins with, who do others say that I am? And then it moves on to a more personal dimension, a more personal focus, when Jesus looks right at the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? And so we talked about the significance of that question, and we talked as well about the significance of Peter's answer to that question. This morning, we're going to press on to the very next verse where we begin together to unpack Jesus' response to Peter's confession of faith. And you might think, you know, well, um, Pastor Kevin, I've heard you preach on this passage before. Um, What's new? What are you going to cover that we haven't already learned? Well, um, I don't know that I'm going to tell you anything that you haven't ever heard or learned before, but I'm convinced that this passage is really foundational, really critical to the mission of the church, to our identity as followers of Jesus Christ, to our understanding of who he is and what he came to do and what he's called us to do as we follow him. So what I felt um, led to do with our, this series of messages over the Lenten season is to just press in on this story a little deeper and to take our time to really work and think through it Um, considering very carefully what God wants us to understand on the basis of this story. So we're going to just think about this one single verse this morning, Matthew 16, verse 17. And I want to help you to think about that verse in a bit of a different way. If you'll um, give me some grace to try and experiment with uh, with you this morning. Um, Typically, I'm, I'm more of a pedagogical type teacher where, you know, I work through point by point. Uh, the insights of a given passage, I want to try something that's often referred to as a more narrative style of preaching this morning. And so I'm going to share with you two stories that are uh, really going to compare and contrast uh, with one another and that are connect connect back uh, to Jesus' words in Matthew 16, verse 17. And so let me just draw your attention here. First and foremost to the reality that Jesus is comparing two ideas, two ways of thinking about the confession that Peter made. It was a confession of faith, a recognition of who Jesus is. But how did Peter arrive at that understanding? That's the question that lies behind and beneath Matthew 16, verse 17. So right from the outset, I guess I'm, I'm warning you here, or at least informing you, that this message is going to be a little bit different than most that I preach. It's a bit of an experiment, but I hope you'll find it engaging and insightful, and um, you can tell me later if you were blessed and encouraged. So let's begin with a story about one of the best and smartest manifestations of flesh and blood that ever walked on the face of this earth. And I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about a man named Albert. Now, uh, you're probably going to catch on fairly quickly, and um, actually we'll just put a picture up here so that you know exactly who I'm talking about. This is our our old friend, um, the dearly beloved and greatly respected Albert Einstein, roundly recognized as perhaps one of the most brilliant human beings that ever lived. 
Now, I don't know. I think it'd be, you know, kind of interesting to have, like, wouldn't it be cool if we could have a reality show that was like a, a, a competition of wits between, you know, several people that might be candidates as the, the smartest man who ever lived. But Einstein would, would certainly be one of those candidates. I don't know if he would win the contest, but he would certainly be uh, recognized as one of the smartest men who ever lived. Now, let me digress before I get into Einstein's story uh, to give you just a point of connection here. I want to tell you just briefly about something that happened to me yesterday um, that helps me to relate to something that happened to Einstein. Yesterday, uh, I found myself without money, and I needed it. Has this ever happened to you? Um, So... uh, I got out of bed in the morning, and I had several commitments throughout the day that I had to attend to, and uh, I didn't think about the fact that I'd left my wallet accidentally in the vehicle that my daughter drove to work at Chick-fil-A. And uh, so I got in my car, and I headed off. I didn't have time to, to chase the wallet down. I realized where it was when I was leaving, and I thought, well, I'll be okay. I guess you know, I could probably get by for half a day without any cash. Um, got in the car, and of course, the first thing I did was to check the gas gauge. How, how low is the gas gauge? Am I going to need money to buy gas? Um, well, I had about a third of a tank, and I thought, oh, I should be okay. I can do what I need to do and get back home just fine. Um, so I left, headed off to my first engagement. Well, of course, my engagements throughout the day were all over Lansing on different sides of town, driving back and forth here and there, and um, As the morning wore on and I drove from one place to another, the gas gauge started to to drop, and as the gas gauge dropped lower and lower, my anxiety started to rise higher and higher, and of course, you know, not that I'm completely unspiritual, I began to pray a little bit more too, and uh, um, finally, after my second to last engagement of the afternoon, the tank was on E. And the light was on, and I began to think, how much further can I go? Am I going to make it home? And uh, finally, um, it was a little bit out of the way, but I thought, you know, I really have to get to a gas station and just see, you know, see if I can scrounge any change out of the bottom of the car and um, try to put just a little bit more gas in the car to make sure I can get where I need to go. So I, I was able to scrounge up $1 worth of change. And it was very humbling to walk into the gas station and say to the attendant, I'd like $1 on number three, please. Um, and, and, here's, and here are my nickels and dimes. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, anyway, uh, praise be to God, I got to the next place that I was going which was um, the home of some friends to pick up um, Enoch and Elliot, who had been at a basketball tournament earlier in the day. And uh, I humbled myself again to request of my friends, hey, um, do you have a little gas, you know, like in your garage, a little canister that I could put a gallon or two in? Or maybe perhaps could I borrow a few dollars and, uh, you know, pay you back later? So all that to say, I know what it feels like to be caught without money when you need it. And it's um, perhaps timely that I had that experience just yesterday um, as I was preparing to speak to you this morning. Maybe the Lord had a point in all that. Um, And the reason I share that with you is because the the point of connection here with Einstein is that 
Um, there's a story that's come to light over the last um, year or so about an experience that he had when he was 43 years old. Now, um, Einstein had an illustrious life, and I'm sure you know bits and pieces of it just because um, he's you know, a pretty well-known, uh, pretty famous scientist who had a huge impact uh, on all of us in perhaps ways that we don't even realize. So um, he was born in 1879, and at the time of his humbling experience, um, he was 43 years old, and yet at that time he was already a, a world-renowned theoretical physicist who was famous for his brilliance, even at 43, and more specifically for winning the Nobel Prize in physics just the year before in 1921. So the year 1922 was a crazy year for Albert Einstein. He completed his first paper on unified field theory, whatever that is. He went to Paris uh, to help normalize relations between France and Germany. Oh, no big deal. And he joined an intellectuals committee at the League of Nations. Then he learned that he'd won the 1921 Nobel Prize in physics um, and was invited to Stockholm to receive the award uh, but he had already made a commitment to go on a tour, a teaching tour in Japan. So he had a decision to make, and he decided that he was going to forego the, uh, the awards ceremony and keep his commitment to go on this teaching tour in Japan. So he arrived in Tokyo, and when he arrived, there were literally thousands upon thousands of people uh, that greeted him and were waiting um, they watched him at the Imperial Palace, uh, witnessing his meeting with the emperor and the empress. And um, nearly 2,500 people, that's 2,500 people, paid to see his first lecture um, in the city, which lasted almost four hours with translation. So then he went back to the hotel room, and um, he was about to get humble, like I was. A delivery man arrived at the door um, at his room, a courier, uh, with a, a package for Einstein. And he um, searched and found himself with empty pockets and no way to offer the appropriate and customary tip to his courier. So what did he do? Well, imagine this, a brilliant man in a moment like that, what would you do? Um, here's what he did. In that moment, Einstein thought to himself, I'm going to offer him a different sort of tip that may prove to be even more valuable than spare change. So he took two pieces of stationery from the hotel desk and he wrote down on them some words of advice for this hotel courier. Two tips. For his career. On the first sheet, he wrote some wise words of advice from the challenge that he had faced with his own growing fame. He wrote, a quiet and modest life brings more joy than a pursuit of success bound with constant unrest. And then on the second page of stationery, he wrote an even shorter statement, <clears throat> a tip that had served him quite well to this point in his own life. It simply read in German, where there's a will, there's a way. And then at the bottom of each page, he signed his name 
and dated the notes, folded them up, and handed them to the courier apologetically. And as the story goes, he offered, as he offered these tips to the young man, he said, maybe if you're lucky, these notes will become much more valuable than a regular tip. If Einstein had only known the future like he knew physics. Here's a picture for you of the two notes, <clears throat> which were discovered just a few years ago. And they were put up for auction by a man, as it turns out, who was, uh, by all appearances, the grandson of the Japanese bellboy's brother, who had somehow come into possession of these two notes, the grandson of the Japanese bellboy's brother. And he decided to auction them off in, 19, uh, in I'm sorry, 2017, just two years ago. And prior to that time, nobody knew that these letters even existed, or these notes. So they have now been um, referred to as uh, Einstein's thoughts on the secret of happiness. Einstein's thoughts on the secret of happiness. Now, would you like to know how valuable those tips turned out to be? Get this. When they went up for auction in 2017, they were valued initially by the auctioneer at about $8,000. And when the gavel finally landed after the last and highest bid, they sold for $1.56 million. $1.56 million. When the sale was finally announced, the whole room burst into a wild applause. And afterward, a spokesman for the auction house named uh, Meni Shaddad told the New York Times that this was an all-time record for an auction of a document in Israel, where they were auctioned, and it was just, wow, wow, wow. Like He had no words to describe what had just taken place. And then he, uh, reflecting on it further, said, I think the value can be explained by the fact that the story behind the tip is so uplifting and inspiring. And because Einstein continues to be a global rock star long after his death. <clears throat> now, why do I tell you this story? Well, because it occurs to me that as valuable as those tips might be, not just in terms of money, but in terms of wisdom, I think... Jesus might take issue with Einstein, especially over the second note. Where there's a will, there's a way. Now, let me be clear. I'm not trying to disrespect Einstein in any particular way, I, and I don't think he was entirely wrong. I'm, it's not like I'm trying to suggest that I'm somehow smarter than I, you know, Einstein, uh, for sure. But the exercise of the human will, though it can indeed accomplish some truly amazing things, will come up short when it comes to figuring out Jesus, unless there's a little extra help involved. In other words, my point is this, the weight of faith in Jesus, according to Jesus, is not simply by a sheer act of human intelligence and will, 
Einstein's lack of faith in Jesus actually serves to prove my point. You can't just find your way to Jesus, flesh and blood, without revelation. So make no mistake about it. I, I believe that Einstein was a brilliant person and that he you know, contributed significantly to humankind in a number of different ways. Perhaps he was the smartest man who ever lived and certainly is deserving of our, our greatest respect. But Einstein's flesh and blood, though they've made a profound and transformative impact on science and really the whole of humanity, Einstein's flesh and blood, Einstein's intellect and will were incapable of bringing him to faith in Jesus. Think about that. The smartest man who ever lived was not smart enough to believe in Jesus. That's amazing. Now, how do I, how do I know? Because he wrote some other things about his perspective on God and religion. In fact, there's another batch of recently discovered letters uh, from Einstein, uh, one of which was written to his, um, uh, a fellow philosopher about his thoughts on God and religion. And um, here's where he came down. Here's where Einstein came down on the existence of God and the value of religion. And perhaps it's telling that his notes on the secrets to happiness included no reference to God whatsoever. Here's what he wrote in what's now referred to as his God letter, which sold, by the way, at auction for $3 million. He wrote, um, describing that he'd been raised as a dev- in a devout Jewish family until the age of 13, when his readings on philosophy led him to abandon his family heritage. As one biographer puts it, at that young age, he abandoned his uncritical religious fervor, feeling that he'd been deceived into believing lies. Years later, in 1954, in this so-called God letter, uh, which was addressed to a philosopher named Eric Gutkind, Einstein revealed where his own thinking had led him on the subject of, of faith and God. He wrote, the word God for me is nothing more than the, the expression and product of human weaknesses. The Bible is a collection of honorable but still primitive legends which are nevertheless pretty childish. Now, by some, that sentence has been hailed as evidence that, that Einstein was an atheist. But he himself said that he wasn't an atheist and he resented being labeled as one. So he went on in the letter to articulate um, that he had a particular belief in a certain type of God, but different than the relational kind of God that you and I believe in. He also articulated his disenchantment with Judaism and his heritage. He said, for me, the Jewish religion, like all others, is an incarnation of the most childish superstitions. And the Jewish people to whom I gladly belong and whose mentality I have deep affinity with have no different quality for me than all other people. As far as my experience goes, they are no better than any other human groups, 
although they are protected from the worst cancers by a lack of power. Otherwise, I cannot see anything chosen about them. And then he wrote that he believed in what he referred to as Spinoza's God. And he was referring there to Baruch Spinoza, the 17th century Dutch thinker, describing a God who reveals himself in the lawful harmony of the world, not a God who concerns himself with the fate and doings of mankind in any personal way. Now, I know this is kind of complicated. Let me break it down for you. Basically, what I, what I just explained um, in his own words was that Einstein was a deist. He believed in the existence of a God that kind of set everything in motion, but he believed that that, that God had no personal involvement or interest in relating with human beings or making himself known to human beings. And he did not believe that Jesus was of God or from God. Commenting on the contents of this letter, uh, a man named Nick Spencer, a, a fellow at the Christian think tank called Theos, said, Einstein offers scant consolation to either party in this debate. His cosmic religion and distant deist God fits neither the agenda of religious believers or that of of tribal atheists. As so often during his life, he refused and disturbed the accepted categories. And we do this great physicist a disservice when we go to him to legitimize our belief in God or in God's absence. So what's the moral of this story of Einstein's life? What I want you to recognize is that, that the human mind is an amazing and powerful source of knowledge and insight. But Jesus' response to Peter's confession indicates something that should be profoundly humbling to all of us, no matter how smart we are. Even more humbling than than finding your pockets empty. Here's what it amounts to. No matter how smart you are, flesh and blood human intellect and will, is never sufficient to bring people to a life-changing recognition and confession of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. No matter how smart you might be, flesh and blood are never enough. So, Let me now contrast the story of Einstein with another story, the story of another man. And let me encourage you to listen closely to the tip that Jesus offers in Matthew 16, verse 17. Look at this verse again and think about what Jesus is saying to Peter and the significance of this insight. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So, with the realization then that flesh and blood are insufficient to bring us to faith, let me now contrast the story and example of Albert Einstein with another person. And this is a bit of a shocker, so bear with me here and marvel at the wonder of how God's grace 
works in our lives. This is a story about a man known simply by his first name, Mohammed. His identity has to be protected because if the truth of his story became public and his identity was known, he would most certainly be targeted for assassination. Mohammed is not known for his brilliant intellect, but for his violent cruelty because of his association with a group that we've come to refer to as ISIS. In fact, he was not just an ordinary foot soldier for this jihadist Muslim organization, he was a leader in ISIS, a man to whom others pledged their allegiance and even pledged their lives. This story, the story of Muhammad's life, has been recently told by a young missionary named Peter who works with a Christian missions organization called Leading the Way in Syria and in other um, places uh, throughout the Arabic world. And I want to read for you, rather than telling it in my own words, a, a short summary of Muhammad's story that was written up by a journalist named Erica Jones for CBN News. And yes, I did mean CBN, not CBS, um, which is the Christian Broadcast Network. Here's what Erica wrote about this man named Mohammed. A prince of ISIS has done what many would consider unthinkable, making a commitment to turn away from his horrifying past to unite with a new way of life through Jesus Christ. This former ISIS leader, whose identity has been disguised for his safety, is being called Mohammed. The miraculous circumstances that led to his transformation were first reported by Dr. Michael Youssef's Leading the Way ministry. Since the launch of its Christian satellite TV station, The Kingdom Sat, Leading the Way is working to touch some of the most unreachable lives in the Arabic world, including people like this notorious prince of ISIS. The ministry reported that one of their follow-up coordinators named Peter received a call a few years ago from a man who pleaded to meet with him. The man on the other end of the phone with Peter turned out to be a spiritual leader in the terrorist group. Even though Peter knew it was possible that Mohammed might try to kill him, he believed God was leading him to go ahead with the meeting anyway. In his testimony, Mohammed opened up about the dramatic shift from Islam to Christianity. One day, somebody asked me why I'm a Muslim, he said. Scrambling for answers, he began to search in the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sunnah. I wanted to find proof and evidence that Allah exists and that Islam is right, but I found nothing, he said. But that wasn't the initial reason why Muhammad met with Peter. He says that he'd actually wanted to kill Peter during their first encounter when Peter boldly spoke the word of Jesus over this ISIS leader. <clears throat> The meeting did not end on a positive note. Muhammad became frustrated and struggled to grasp what Peter had told him about who God really is. Then the two met for a second time. Leading the way's senior director of ministry outreach, Maged Atala, explained what happened in the next meeting. The second time they met, Muhammad told Peter he had a dream. And he saw an envelope dripping with blood that had great fragrance in the dream. 
Peter, upon hearing this, interpreted the dream and explained to him that in this dream, God was telling him that blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins and that it was the blood of Jesus that had done this for him. Peter told him, Jesus is sending you a message and you need to give your life to him. At that moment, Muhammad surrendered his life to Jesus. Only then did Muhammad tell Peter that the first time they'd met, he had a knife in his pocket and had wanted to kill him on the spot, but something had prevented him from doing so. Now, <clears throat> Muhammad's burning life questions have been answered, and his life has been dramatically turned around, and he's actively involved in leading others into relationship with Jesus. In fact, this story, and it's a true story, um, was actually put into video form using uh, actors um, so that it could be dispersed to a broader audience around the world. And I want to just take a moment to show you this brief video. It's about four minutes long. Take a look. <clears throat> tell you a story. Peter is our new follow-up coordinator. He said he got a call, got a phone call on his cell phone, which we broadcast on our channel, and it was from a man, we'll call him Muhammad. And Muhammad said, I need to meet with you. Now, normally our guys would say, not a good idea. Let's talk first on the phone. But he felt the Lord was saying, go meet this guy. Who turned out to be what is called a prince of ISIS, someone that other ISIS members swear allegiance to that they will die for. The prince was a religious person in ISIS, and they considered him like a leader who teaches the Quran. He taught people how to memorize the Quran and urged them to jihad. I grew up on the radicalism. I was raised to take back Islam to the era of Muhammad, the era of power and conquests. We began to form groups to defend the country and Islam. One day, somebody asked me why I am a Muslim. I had no answer. I began to search in the Quran, Hadith, and Sunnah. I wanted to find proof and evidence that Allah exists and Islam is right. I found nothing. The prince heard that I evangelized to Muslims. He got my number and called saying that he wanted to meet and talk. I had a strange feeling that he was from ISIS and that he might try to kill me. But I had a peace inside that the Lord would protect me as he had a reason behind this encounter. So I set up an appointment knowing that he could try to kill me. When I went to Peter, I was scared, but I wanted to search for the truth. So he went and he met with Muhammad and he said, the Lord spoke to him in that moment. He said, be bold with him. I said to him directly, our God is not yours. When I listened to Peter, I felt his words were arrogant. His words had awakened Muhammad, the radical one. Because of my anger, for a moment, I forgot why I came to Peter. 
I suddenly had one thought. How should I kill him? He boldly proclaimed the gospel to this man, this bearded man. He started crying while I was telling him these words. What made me cry? I don't know. While he was crying, I put my hand on his shoulder and started to pray. He then got up and left me. I felt he was not stable. They met. They went their separate ways. He called again. The man came back very shaken. I had a dream. Peter came to me and gave me a white envelope dripping with blood. The blood had a good fragrance like musk or perfume. When I saw the blood, I was scared. Peter said to me, don't be afraid. Then I woke up. Later, Peter told me, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The prince asked, what should I do to ask forgiveness? I said, the Lord gave it to you for free. You just need to accept it. And gradually, I began to disciple him. So they came together, and Muhammad said, Peter, I have a confession. I have to tell you that the first time I was going to meet with you, I intended to kill you, and I'm sorry. And he fell on his face, and he repented. I began to visit Peter regularly, and I saw love that didn't exist in Islam. He started walking with the Lord right away. He shaved his beard. He changed his whole life. Then he asked to be baptized. Once I got out of the water, I felt a victory and a joy I could not describe. He is conducting a Bible study for three Syrian people in his area. The true book, in my opinion, is the Bible. I found the truth in Jesus Christ. And because I have surrendered my life to the Lord, I am certain He will never forsake me. Only Jesus. So two stories. What does this one speak to us? What does this second story, very different from the first one, teach us? Well, if you can get past the shock and offense of how God's mysterious grace might be extended to one man and not the other, here's what it amounts to. Revelation comes from God. And it's the only way that people can recognize in faith who Jesus really is and what he did for them. Revelation. Revelation. What is it? Revelation. The Greek word that Jesus used in Matthew 16 and is used throughout the New Testament, in fact, a total of 44 times, is the the word apocalypto, from which perhaps you recognize we get the word apocalypse. It literally means to uncover or unveil or reveal something that has been hidden. In other words, as Jesus used it with Peter, he was explaining to Peter that his identity, his true identity, could not be discovered by sheer human logic or reasoning. It had to be revealed. It had to be uncovered. So listen carefully. What does this mean for us? And this is where I want to end with you this morning. What does this mean for us? It means 
that we can't possibly convince anyone to believe in Jesus as we do. Only God can do that. But it doesn't mean that we have no role to play. It doesn't mean that we're not supposed to speak, that we're not supposed to share, that we're not supposed to bear witness. It doesn't mean that we're not supposed to pray, that we're not supposed to work, that we're not supposed to partner with Jesus to make him known. It just means that in the end, God's the only one that can open the eyes of a person's heart so that they'll see as we do. Now, we're going to explore this in greater depth and detail over the coming weeks as we dig into verses 18 and 19, because this one sentence in verse 17 isn't all that Jesus had to say to Peter. And what he's going to say next has everything to do with the meaning and purpose and mission of the church, which is the body of Christ in the world. So we're going to continue to to press in on this over the coming weeks, but I, I want you to see in verse 17, the basic reality that Jesus has to be made known by the Father. We have a part to play. We're called to partner with God to make Jesus known. We are called to speak, to proclaim the good news of who Jesus is and to demonstrate it and to pray that that revelation would come. And if anything, I hope that you'll be inspired by these stories to do that more and more. But in the end, salvation is up to God. The impartation of grace comes from Him. So the bad news is that we do have to do some things to partner with God. Maybe you think that's bad news. I don't know that it necessarily is, but we do have some things that we're called to do to represent Jesus to the world around us. But the good news is that we don't do these things alone, apart from God. He's called us into partnership with him. We don't have to, nor can we possibly convince any other person to see Jesus the way that we do. But as we speak about Jesus and as we represent him to others and as we pray for them, the revelation of God is released. And that's a beautiful and wonderful gift. So we're going to explore this together over the coming weeks. Let me finish with um, these words from Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 because what I want you to understand as well is that this principle continues to work in our lives over time. Revelation is how we come into relationship with Jesus to begin with and revelation is also how we continue to grow in relationship with Jesus as time goes on. And so Paul said this to his friends in Ephesus. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Friends, let's pray that Jesus would do that for us, that the Father would do that for us, 
and for others through us. Amen.